0: I can go through this. I've done this recently. Well, oh, really? Recently. So what we did, just so you'd know before we go yes. through it, basically you can do it straight from it, but I think just as a practical thing you're going to have division 7A and the LRBA rules applying to that and, yes. like, the rules are not exactly consistent on the rates and all that kind of stuff. So I think the simplest way to do it is to do the Div 7A loan to the individual and then the individual lends the money. Oh, LBA. really? So you
1: do a Div 7A loan to the individual, in this yep. case Sally, yep. and then Sally lends the money to the SMSF, the Yeah, SMS or of you do the
0: Div 7A loan to like a trust or if you want the trust to be the lender.
1: You do a Div 7A loan,
0: mm-hmm. you don't
1: pull the money out of the company as a dividend.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you do that, you pay top-up tax and, you know, you don't want to, want to yeah. have to do that. You're listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast. Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals.
1: Welcome to episode 188 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. As you know, most big banks by now have pulled out of the LRBA market There are still some second-tier lenders who provide LRBAs, but the majority of new LRBAs now come from related parties. And the cash for these related-party LRBAs often sit in bucket companies. So the question is, how do you get the cash out of the bucket company into the SMSF without triggering a Division 7a issue? That is the question I asked Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney.
0: So in this scenario, we've got Bob who runs a trading company. Shares in the company are owned by a discretionary trust, and the company's doing well and and making profits. And each year, it uh, declares dividends to the trust, and then the trust distributes the money to another company, a bucket company, and that bucket company is owned by Bob's wife, Sally, as the sole shareholder of the bucket company. Bob and Sally have also just set up an SMSF and they're looking at buying a property through the through the SMSF and then the SMSF doesn't have enough cash to fund that outright. So it's looking at uh, getting a limited recourse borrowing arrangement or LRBA. Now with, with LRBAs, you can go to banks, and there are some banks and, and other sort of non top tier lenders that lend in the LRBA space. But if you don't want to go through banks um, because you've got other means, you can actually internally be your own bank and do a LRBA with yourself or with an entity that you control.
1: Yeah, with a related party. With a
0: related party, yeah. And there's all kinds of uh, guidelines and um, rules that are going to be put in place to make sure that arrangement is compliant. So in this scenario, we've got. It posed that the bucket company would lend money to the SMSF and question posed is, well, what's the best way of actually doing that? So we've got various tax rules to consider here. The main two are firstly the LRBA rules and the ATO's guidelines and what the ATO say needs to be in place for the, an LRBA arrangement. Just to give a little bit of background, a few years ago, the ATO uh, said that if a related party lends to an SMSF and lends at an uncommercial rate, the arrangement would be caught by the non-arms-length income rules. So, for example, if the if the related party lender lent at one percent interest rate, that would probably be below market and the non-arms length income rules would apply. So the ATO said, well, here's some guidance to, uh, if you fall within these guidelines, it's unlikely that we'll apply that view to your circumstances. So that's the first consideration. The second consideration's Division 7A, and Division 7A is an issue because we've got a company and it's lending to what's likely to be an associate of a shareholder of that company. So we've got those two those two elements. So the first question you've got here Heidi is well who should provide the LRBA? I think technically you could have the bucket company provide it directly to the SMSF. I think the only issue you're going to have to grapple with in that case is that you've got sort of two two rules that would apply to that arrangement. One you've got Division 7A, but you've also got the ATO's LRBA guidelines and you know the two are not exactly the same for instance the interest rates stated in those two are different so you know what do you do do you go for the higher one do you take the lower one i would say the easier way of dealing with the scenario is not for the bucket company to lend directly to the smsf now, of course, you don't want the bucket company to have to declare a dividend because that would defeat the whole purpose of having a bucket company. If the bucket company was to declare a dividend, you would pay you know, up to uh, you know 17% top-up tax on that dividend going out. Yeah, or so
1: even more. If the um, company tax rate is less than 30%, it would correct. be even more.
0: Yeah, sorry. It could be could be even more than that. So one alternative would be for the bucket company to actually declare a dividend, but that's not likely to be a desirable alternative. So I would say the most ideal way of doing the arrangement would be for the bucket company to lend to an intermediary. Now, that intermediary could be Sally or it could be a discretionary trust. Let's just say it's Sally for, for these purposes. Just keep it straightforward.
1: When you say discretionary trust, it shouldn't be the discretionary trust that holds the shares of the um, trading company.
0: Yeah, most likely it's probably better to be a different different discretionary for
1: trust. For creditor protection.
0: Yeah, Yep. Yeah. So let's say there's a loan from the bucket company to Sally, unless that's put on compliant terms, that would be a Division 7A problem. So that would need to be an unsecured Division 7A seven-year loan. Put the loan agreement in place, that arrangement's very well understood and yep, you've got a seven-year loan there. And then from that intermediary, so say from Sally, Sally can then enter into the LRBA arrangement between herself and the SMSF and then that arrangement would be put ideally on the ATO guideline terms to minimise the risk of the non-arms length income rules applying. So you've got sort of two steps, I guess. You Instead of going directly from the bucket company to the SMSF, you've gone bucket company to intermediary, intermediary to SMSF.
1: Could we talk about how yep. Division 7A and LRBA is different? Yep. So Division 7A is over seven years. Yep. I assume the LRBA doesn't have the seven-year... Limit. I can imagine the LRBA can be whatever time frame you could get from a bank.
0: Yes, you've got two different options. You can either rely, it doesn't necessarily have to be seven years, no. You can either put the LRBA agreement on the terms that you could get from a bank, or you can follow the ATO guideline terms. But in both cases, they're longer than. The ATO's guidelines are longer than seven years and I imagine any commercial, you could get commercial arrangements longer than seven years as well.
1: What does the ATO guidelines say with respect to the length of the loan agreement?
0: Let me just check. I think it's 15 years. Let me just check it. I don't want to say the wrong thing. <laughs> um, ATO guidelines. Yeah, so the ATO guidelines generally say that it's got to be a maximum 15 years. There's other requirements in the guidelines as well about loan-to-value ratios, periodicity of repayments and other things like that. But you can choose to either take the safe harbor approach and stick to the ATOs, what they've stated, or you could get some comparable terms from a lender and then Replicate those terms.
1: Mm. Okay, good. So let's say the LRBA is fifteen years, but the Division Seven A loan is only seven years. So what do we do at the end of the seven years? Because Sally doesn't have the money now to pay back the Division Seven A loan after seven years.
0: Yeah, well, because she
1: unlented. it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I mean, doing an arrangement where there's a mismatch of timing for payments, you'd have to consider you know, whether it should just be on a seven-year term as well, whether there's going to be other income coming through the group to fund it. Yeah, it's a good coin.
1: So your time frame is basically seven years. The SMSF need to be able to cover the entire loan within seven years through contributions or through investment gains.
0: Yeah, well, you'd need to structure the arrangements so that you're comfortable that you can meet your Division 7A requirements because there's no point structuring an arrangement where you're not going to get enough to meet the minimum interest and principal repayments required under Division 7A, whether from that SMSF loan agreement or from, there might be other sources of income, so they might be happy to have a mismatch.
1: Yeah, you're right. Sally might have other income that she then can use to slowly repay the Division 7A loan.
0: Yeah, correct.
1: So that's the loan period. And Mm. what about the interest rates? First for Division 7A, how do we actually set the interest rate? Is the interest rate for Division 7A reset at periodic points in time? Yeah, the
0: interest rate for Division 7A, the ATO publisher ruling on, oh, sorry, determination on what the interest rate is each year and the way most Division 7A loan agreements work is that rather than stating the interest rate in the Division 7A loan agreement, it will state that the interest rate is the rate essentially published or required by the ATO each year. So it does change each year.
1: The interest rate changes as of 1st of July each year? Yep. I see. Okay, good. Is it usually less or more than a bank loan or is it I difficult to say? The,
0: uh, the division 7A rate is less than the LRBA HO guideline rate so the now LRBA be- guideline rate is based on it's referred to one of the RBA Reserve Bank indicator rates so it's tied to a different it's tied to a different measure
1: okay so the division 7a interest rate changes every year as of 1st of July yep and the LRBA interest rate changes also
0: the ATO guideline rate does can well can change each year. The ATO could decide that it shouldn't change for whatever reason if if the conditions haven't changed. But the ATO guideline one generally changes as well. So I've had some clients say, look, it's too much hassle to change it by a little bit each year. Can't we just can't we just fix it? And I say, well, look, you can do that. You won't be strictly falling within the guidelines. So it's then a case of if the ATO did look at it you would have to say that, well, that's still a market arm's length rate. The fact that it's not moving every year doesn't mean that it's not arm's length. You'd have to actually make that argument rather than just relying on the safe harbour. The
1: Division 7A interest rate is set... The Division uh, 7A? The tax
0: determination. Ah, so yeah. I see. So
1: yeah. that's a tax determination, so yep. TD yep. for Division 7A. And what is it for the LIBA? Is it also tax
0: determination? The LRBA is not a tax determination. I believe it's just published in the ATO's guidelines. They have an original ECG, which is like a practical compliance guideline, then they publish material. I don't think it's a tax determination. They do publish material to say what the new rate should be.
1: I see. Okay. And the tax determination for the Division 7A does change every year as of 1st of July, but the guideline for the LRBA might change, Mm. but it also might not change.
0: Yeah. The difference between the two is that the Division 7A one is given statutory effect through the provisions of Division 7A plus the tax determination regime so that it's very mechanical and that's the right with the lrba ones it's got to be borne in mind that these are guidelines published by the ato they don't have the same force of law so there is a difference there and that's why they're sort of yeah. published in different forms
1: and the guideline for the lrba doesn't necessarily change every year
0: yeah you know if you're trying to marry up those two concepts it can be A bit challenging to have a loan directly from the bucket company to an SMSF where you've got to deal with both Division 7A and the LRBA rules. I think it's far simpler to put a step in between. So one step you deal with Division 7A and the other step you deal with the LRBA and the ATO guidelines.
1: To summarize, in this scenario, Sally takes a Division 7A loan from the bucket company and then makes an LRBA to the SMSF? Yes. Before I understood more about LRBAs, I assumed that it was just a little, <laughs> even a little clause or something. And then, of course, I learned that it is a completely different kettle of fish and is actually a lot more expensive than the actual trust deed for the SMSF.
0: Yeah, putting in place an LRBA arrangement is not simple and it is complex and it's got to be borne in mind that if you don't do it correctly you don't fall within the exclusions and the whole arrangement contravenes various Act rules you then probably have an auditor that's going to be barking and saying look this arrangement's not you know you got to do this that and the other so it's really important from a protection point of view to put them in place correctly and because the requirements are complex then it means that the cost of doing it is um, by implication higher Um, so for instance the things that need to be put in place some of them are that you need a custodian entity so it can't be the trustee of the self-managed super fund acquiring the asset and that's
1: probably an easy mistake to make yep I can yep. imagine that uh, some accountants, by accident, get the um, copper trustee of the SMSF to buy mm. the uh, property.
0: Yeah. So one cost will be setting up that custodian entity, and then making sure that from the conveyance and the property purchase perspective, the custodian entity is listed there as the acquirer, not mm. you know the members or this or the SMSF. So the trustee of the SMSF. You've then got. In the context of a related party's LRBA, you've then got the loan agreement that needs to be put in place and that needs to be a special loan agreement that ensures that the only recourse that the lender has in respect of the the borrowing arrangement is to that particular asset. So hence the limited recourse nature, which means that, in other words, if the SMSF cannot pay defaults on its obligations. The only remedy for the lending entity is to take action in respect of that property. So if the SMSF has other assets, they're ring-fenced and excluded from the arrangement. So the loan agreement needs to be correctly put in place so that, that limited there is limited recourse. Then you've got requirements of having to register a mortgage
1: is that necessary? Does the LRBA actually need to be registered as a mortgage, even if it's related party? Or I'd do you say only yeah. need I see to make it arm's length?
0: Yeah. You yep. need to
1: register a mortgage. Yeah,
0: I believe it is actually required in legislation as well that a mortgage needs to be put in place. So yes, you need to put you need to put a mortgage in place. It's not enough just to have the right to put one in place. You you do need to put it in place because without having a mortgage in place the you have the lender doesn't have the same protection. So I would say yes. Need to put need to put the mortgage in place.
1: Hmm. I can imagine that is another easy mistake. Yeah. because you can buy LRBA agreements off hmm. the shelf. Yep. Or just through an online document provider. Yep. But I can imagine a lot of people don't realise that the LRBA document in itself is not enough. That you actually to make it at arm's length, that yeah. you actually need to put a mortgage on it.
0: Yeah. And then there's also what happens at the end of the arrangement. So at the end of the arrangement, let's say you pay off the loan. What's required to happen at that point is that the custodian arrangement should actually come to an end. So in other words, legal title to the property should be transferred from the custodian entity to the self-managed super fund. Now that involves a transfer, going to the titles office, doing the legal paperwork to affect that transfer. The mortgage obviously needs to be removed as well. And in addition, because we're doing a transfer, we've got to go to the relevant revenue bodies so Revenue New South Wales or State Revenue Office and actually apply for and get a duty exemption. And then that process requires various evidence and an application to be put forward to the revenue body to explain that what's been put in place was a custodian arrangement, there was a LRBA, it's now been paid off and consistent with the rules, we're now transferring legal title from the custodian to the trustee of the SMSF. So there's quite a lot of work in those steps as well.
1: There are a lot of off-the-shelf documents on the market. My gut feeling is that some things are quite straightforward and hence you probably can just use off-the-shelf documents. But then that the issue is that you need to know where that is no longer good enough and you need to look at proper custom-made yeah. documents. And, th- and yeah. I can imagine that setting up the SMSF corporate trustee probably is okay to do off the shelf Mm. setting up the custodian company is probably okay to just have an accountant etc do it i don't think the custodian company even needs a constitution i can imagine replaceable Mm. rules are enough for the custodian company so that's quite straightforward as well one can just do that off the shelf but i can imagine where it gets tricky and where you really need to spend more money to make it watertight is the division 7a loan agreement and then the LIB agreement to make sure those two agreements really lock properly and that you don't leave gaps that can unravel the whole thing
0: completely and i guess the other danger is if you're using just off the shelf documents for everything and you don't have a full comprehension of what's actually required under the law because there's various products out there and you might not actually pick the right one or there's something specific to your circumstances which means that that's not applicable or relevant so yeah some of those more administrative steps like setting up the trustee so the custodian entity of course you can do that off the shelf but yeah some of the more nuanced steps think it's uh, mm. appropriate to get advice and it'd be quite dangerous doing those arrangements without getting that advice.
1: Would it make sense to not worry about an LIBA and put the um, property into a unit trust and then the SMSF just buys the units in the unit trust?
0: Yes, it's a good question. We're talking about the LRBA rules and the LRBA rules come about because there's a restriction on an SMSF borrowing. There's also restrictions on a unit trust or a company that's owned and controlled by an SMSF borrowing. So, for example, if an SMSF owns 100% of the units in a unit trust, there's rules that say that that unit trust cannot borrow at all Can't borrow even on a limited recourse basis. It just cannot borrow at all. But those rules only apply where the SMSF in question actually controls the unit trust or company. If we had some slightly different circumstances where we had, say, instead of just Bob, we had Bob and his two business partners who are unrelated and they wanted to essentially buy one third each of the property, they could set up a unit trust. And then the unit trust could be owned one-third, one-third, one-third by their respective SMSFs. Now, Bob's SMSF, for instance, would not control that unit trust because he's only got one-third, can't force the others, he's not related to the other two parties, they're not associates under the definition in the Income Tax Act, that unit trust doesn't have any borrowing restrictions it can borrow just like any other entity can so it doesn't need to be a limited recourse borrowing arrangement and there's no prohibition on that entity actually borrowing so that can be another solution where you've actually got multiple business partners wanting to do the operation jointly so you need at least two and preferably three
1: yeah, because with two, they're still possible. I mean, you're
0: yeah, you're in a wafer thin edge of the fence on yes. whether you control it or not. So it can be a little bit, you can be done with two, but it's better if there's more than two.
1: Mm. So if Bob is alone, then the unit trust is no way around the need for an LRBA. No. But if Bob has two business partners, then the unit trust makes sense because then yeah. the rules are a lot less strict. Yeah.
0: Then you don't even need to worry about the LRBA rules at all, which would make things simpler. And in the fact scenario you gave, then in that case, the bucket company could just lend directly to that trust, and uh, that might not even need to be on Division Seven A terms because that trust probably not an associate of the shareholder. So it makes things much more simple. Think about Jesus.
1: Believe, oh, With the custodian company, mm. in Victoria, you have the nominee concept, but in New South Wales, you don't.
0: Yeah, correct. So the difference between the two is based on what's actually subject to duty. So in New South Wales, an instrument of a transfer, as in, in other words, a contract, is subject to duty itself. And in Victoria, it's the transfer the actual transfer that's subject to duty. So what the difference practically means is in that New South Wales, there's no ability to nominate without getting stung by more duty. So in other words, in the example of Bob, Bob's arrangement, the custodian needs to be set up in place so it can be the name on the contract of sale and sign the contract. The situation is different in Victoria where the name on the contract could be bob personally you could then set up the custodian afterwards and nominate the custodian and so long as there hasn't been any as long as that nomination is not a commercial arrangement and there hasn't been any land development between the date of the contract and the nomination then there's no consequences from doing that so there's a bit more flexibility there so depending on the jurisdiction you may need to have everything ready to go beforehand from a Practical perspective, it's always better to have everything get ready to go anyway because it's just one less headache to deal with.
1: But in Victoria, if Bob buys the property in his name and then transfers it to the custodian company, it doesn't matter that the Castonian company didn't exist at the time of signing the contract?
0: No, so not transfers, nominates. So Bob, the difference with a nomination, Bob never has received the property He signed the contract, but between the contracts being signed and the settlement, he said that, nope, I'm not going to be the one purchasing this property. The purchase is actually going to be the custodian. So then when settlement happens, it goes straight from the vendor to the custodian, and Bob's not in the picture anymore even though he signed the original contract.
1: Yes, and in New South Wales, stamp duty is attached to the signing of the contract, hence if Bob buys the property in his name and then transfers it to the custodian company, you basically have two property acquisitions and two sets of stamp duty.
0: Yes, so correct. So in New South Wales, duty is attached to both the instrument and the transfer, and if the two are identical, you only pay one lot of duty. But if the instrument and the transfer are different parties, you pay duty twice pay duty on both of those things you pay duty on the instrument and you pay duty on the transfer you can still do a nominate the concept is still valid you can still do a nomination but it would mean that you pay duty on two separate things so practically
1: hmm. who's
0: going to want to do that
1: so in New South Wales you need to have your paperwork completely in place yeah. before you sign the contract yeah you must have the custodian company already in existence and the custodian company must sign the purchase contract in New South Wales yeah correct Yeah. Welcome back. So the terms and conditions for a Division 7A loan agreement and an LRBA agreement are different if you want to comply with the safe harbour rules and the uh, Division 7A legislation. And so to comply with each set of rules... You separate the two, you make a two agreements rather than one, and you do that by putting an individual or trust or something else between the bucket company and the SMSF. And so then the bucket company doesn't give a Division 7A loan directly to the SMSF, but rather to another entity who then on-lends the cash to the SMSF in the form of an LRBA. In the next episode, episode 189, Andrew Henshaw will talk about tax effective structuring. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you on the next episode.